1: Tennis Direct are Australia's favourite online tennis store with fast delivery and great prices. Free delivery on orders over $150. Just visit their website, tennisdirect.com.au and you can get a 10% discount store-wide. Just use the promo code FIRSTSERV10. That's FIRSTSERV10. Welcome to Aussies Only the first serve's deeper look inside the game at home, talking to those inside and outside the tram lines.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Aussies Only, brought to you by Latua Tennis. Head over to latuatennis.com to get your hands on the hottest tennis apparel in the game. It's your host Jed Zetta with you here, and this week on the show... We've got a very special guest. She is the president of the Women's Tennis Foundation, Bridget Maguire. She's going to be joining us for an extensive edition of the show. I'm joined here by my co-host, Jake Eames. Eamesy, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having
2: me back on again. Um, really looking forward to, to this week, actually. And and as you mentioned, we've, we've uh, got a different perspective here today, and we have interviewed a lot of players, but there are a lot of people behind the scenes who really get things up and running and, and promote this great game of ours. So very excited about today's guest.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a great episode, Bridget. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You are the president of the Women's Tennis Foundation. And I'd like to just start off with asking you how you originally got involved in the tennis landscape.
1: Okay, well, we're going back in history there, fellas. Um, <laughs> um but firstly, I'd just like to say thank you, Jed and, and Jake, uh, for welcoming me this morning. It's a, it's a fantastic opportunity to, to, uh, to be with you and obviously all of all of your, your viewers. Um, and, of course, we're going to talk about my favourite subject, which, which is tennis. So like all of you, I was once a, an aspiring champion. Um, I'm from a migrant family. We uh, arrived in Broadmeadows. That's where we grew up. Uh, it's fair to say that the, the tennis wasn't a big sport in Broadmeadows, um, you know there were the more traditional and uh, cost of team sports that most people played. and I remember watching Wimbledon on TV and seeing players like uh, Chrissie Evert etc who I thought wow they're they're superstars. so that looks pretty good. I like the outfits. I do like my fashion so I thought Gee, that looks good and uh, you know you can be out there. you can be in control of your destiny. I, I liked that about tennis and so I started playing. And luckily for me, there was a young 18-year-old coach, so I'm about nine or ten at this stage, and there was an 18-year-old coach who who turned up who had grown up in Oak Park, which was just down the Brody uh railway line, a few stops down, who had been and played in the States, and he was back, he had some injury, and um, he started coaching at all the local clubs. His name was Craig Tizer. Oh, He's no. actually gone on to coach wow. some, um, some pretty good players, as we know. Um, but Craig was was amazing, and, and for those of of uh, your viewers who don't know craig is is obviously coach of uh, world number one our very own ashley barty and and he's coached a number of fantastic juniors so i was very lucky to have have a coach um this was my first no one had played tennis in my family my brothers had sort of my oldest brother had picked up squash he was a state grade squash player um my next brother he'd started playing a little bit of tennis and so forth but i was the one at you know age nine and age ten that tennis was going to be something that I could get involved in. And Craig was just from the get-go really encouraging. After a couple of lessons, he said, Bridget, you need to play tournaments, get into it. And uh, I was a really shy little girl. I didn't really know what tournaments were or what tennis was about, and this was all new, and we didn't have any background in it. But um, he kept encouraging me to to go along, and I did, and I started to get some success and enjoyed that, so I kept, kept going. Craig, as we know, he didn't stay around for too long. Yeah. He went on and, and got bigger opportunities because he was such a fantastic coach and, and it's it's been wonderful. So that was my first introduction. I think it's really important. It just goes to show the role of the coach, mm. how important that role is in encouraging and helping that love or inspiration that you might find for tennis. There might be all sorts of things that drive you towards it, um, but there's got to be someone else that's going to to help you along and encourage you, particularly if you're not from a traditional tennis family or you're you're not aware of how it all works. Because we've got to be honest, tennis for people who are coming in from outside, it's quite complex and tournaments and all these rules and and uh you know it's it's uh, we need to make continue to work to make it as easy as possible for people to get involved so that's going way back in the last century which makes me sound really old but that lit the fire that lit uh you know the passion for the sport and um you know there's nothing like uh my brothers as i said when i played uh, squash at a very high level my other one loved his loved his footy he's gone on to do a few things in footy and Um, me as being the youngest in the family, I used to love competing with my brothers on whatever level I possibly could. And I loved the fact that, you know, during the school holidays, I could go and play in two age groups, I could play doubles and could possibly come home with four trophies if I did really well. Whereas if my brother got the best and fairest for footy during his season, he'd get one trophy, even though it was a pretty good trophy. Mm -hmm. I could wrap them up so before long I was getting lots of trophies and that sort of inspired me in a weird sort of way to uh, to get involved. So um yeah at a local level I did did okay as a you know uh, as a junior uh, as I said in uh, growing up in those sorts of uh, lower socioeconomic areas it, it mm-hmm. wasn't easy and um, you know there wasn't a lot of access to you know I've never had a private lesson in my life for example which is which is very different for You know how how juniors are are trained now. But um nevertheless, I then got into coaching. And so probably at about 16, I thought, gee, this is this is a good thing. I was really enjoying it. So I worked with a lot of really good uh Victorian coaches who had been former players, Victor Eke, Ernie Ewart, who had great Mm -hmm. businesses at the at the time, and lots of other coaches. I started to get a, a lot of work, so I obviously finished school. Went to uni and uh, you know tried to play a few satellites as they were in those days. Yeah. Um, and as determined as I was, I soon soon worked out that you need a little bit uh, more than that in your repertoire. So, uh-huh. so technique probably came under a bit of pressure, Jake. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I realised I wasn't going to be the next Steffi Graf. So uh, so coaching it it became for me. I um, you know, went to uni and then uh, again you sort of build up these networks, you're playing pennants, you get to know people, you're playing tournaments. Uh, Again, you know, I started to get to know people and people started to understand who I was and what I was, uh, how much I loved tennis. I was very lucky. First job out of uni, I was uh, offered the role of state development officer and the uh, state coach at that time was a gentleman called Craig Tizer. So you can see where the connections and, you know, relationships and, uh, you know, people how you how you meet people so uh, tennis south australia took a chance on me i'm 20 at this age at at this stage just finished uni and luckily enough uh, i got to coach fantastic job in tennis one of those jobs where in a small association um, i know you've you've both experienced this um, Mm. suddenly you're doing Mm. everything so i was given this role as development officer for the entire state we had some government funding so i had about 15 to 20 coaches who I employed and sent them out to every primary school in South Australia. Our program wasn't hot shots in those days. It was called Ace Tennis. And we were at the head, we were right at the early stage of modified sports across Australia. Tennis was leading the way, particularly in South Australia. So I had all these coaches working for me, uh, working with me, um, spreading the love of tennis. I was lucky enough to... um, be one of the coaches uh, who looked after our youngest state squad. So with the, the very young juniors who were coming through and uh, it was an amazing system at that time. We had a, a best, I think it's without doubt, the best state-based elite tennis program that we ever had. Um, so for, for the few years that I was there, I was lucky enough to work with a couple of juniors that went on and kicked some goals, a 10-year-old Leighton Hewitt and a 10-year-old Alicia Mollick um, but in addition to that, we had players such as uh, Dujon Petrovic, uh, who's uh, gone on to be a fantastic coach, as Coach Novak. Uh, you know, Djokovic, who's who's actually gone on okay, hasn't he? It's not Some <laughs> <laughs> good
2: names, the,
1: the program that Craig Tyser set up and Peter Smith, who's a legendary South Australian coach, at that time was phenomenal. We had tour players like Darren kale Mark Woodford, who were coming back to Adelaide. A lot at that time and uh jake and i know you work with a lot of the you know young elite players they were coming back hitting with young players mm. all the time and we had this uh you know the the little kids at the bottom but they were always aspiring to something better they were always looking to who was ahead of them what was in their game how they were improving they're seeing them travel not only interstate but overseas and we really there was a, I was so lucky to work in a a culture of, of true high performance where every yeah. day you're working towards um, getting, getting better. So I, I believe that system that um, you, know, you don't hear a lot about it, but uh, Craig Tizer, uh, Peter Smith, uh, and then the team at South Australia, in South Australia at the time, it was a special time in, in tennis. And uh, we had some great big tournaments at the time. IMG were, were running the Adelaide International, the um, Australian men's hard court was there. So we had McEnroe playing, we had, you know, the world's best playing there at the time. So again, there was always this, you could see those champions. So Mm. we often talk about, particularly in women's sport, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. We were living in it. There were champions (laughs) everywhere who were the best in the world. So it was a very um, special time. So I was extremely lucky. So I'm 20, 21, 22, having this sort of experience. I'm young and enthusiastic, so I have a, a radio segment. I start doing marketing. I am start promoting, you name it. I was just talking tennis and, and promoting the game. So fair enough to say, a few years down the track, nothing much has changed. <laughs> so I've worked, uh, I've been a coach, came back to Melbourne, started up a, a coaching school uh, or club rather, uh, Riverside Tennis Club, which is still going. Um out, uh, out west of, of Melbourne uh, and then then got off at a, uh my first job at Tennis Australia. So I know you're keen to, to hear about what I've uh, done in, in, uh, in worked within Tennis Australia. So um, I've worked there across three decades, which makes me sound really old, <laughs> but I'm really not. I just started really young. Um, and the first one was a, a great national role uh, working with, uh, you know, players with uh, disabilities, so really starting to grow that program for people with disabilities. I was uh, chair of the Gender Equity Working Party back then, so this is this is uh, mid-90s now, so I've okay. always had a passion uh, for making sure that uh, everyone has has the opportunity. So I got my first tournament director role there at, at 23, where I was the tournament director, of uh, what was then the Ford Australian Wheelchair Tennis Tournament, so um, oh, learned all right. about <laughs> learned about how to run a you know it was a Grand Slam, um, and, and talk about learning ace, right? that's right. So I was yeah. a rebound ace. That the first yeah. uh, the first hard court there, um, the Australian Open uh, under Paul McNamee in those days. He uh, you know he. He went forward with with the rebound day. So, so that was a really from from that perspective. I, I, by that stage, a very young age, I'd worked at a state association. So I'd known club land, being a junior player, new tournaments, that sort of thing, had a good feel for that. Then really got my hands dirty at a, at a state member association level. So you really understand how that hierarchy works, supporting the clubs and the coaches and that whole, whole network and, of course, the junior players and their parents who are working so passionately for them. And then stepping into a national body, you then see uh, that role, which isn't as hands-on, but I was mm-hmm. lucky. I do like to get my hands dirty and, and get amongst mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, running tournaments, you, you're really amongst it there with players and, and at that age having to look at budgets, to talk to sponsors, to renew sponsors, to... To, to try and motivate the poor uh, courtesy car drivers who at that stage had worked two weeks full on or three weeks with quali's australian open and then the the wheelchair open was after that at that stage so they're absolutely exhausted so we, yeah. uh, i was learning how to manage manage people and uh, yeah was was thrown into it so so first first uh, great
2: experience in doing that. You, you went on as the marketing director of the Australian Open as well. And uh, we've read that as well. You've been described as one of the, at that time, most powerful woman in tennis.
1: It's hilarious, isn't it? And in
2: 2012, there's a, you produced some record results. Would you like to take us through some of those results? And, and also as well, I find it very interesting, I guess, as a marketing director of Australian Open. it's I think you know, it's such a huge responsibility. And also in Australia with so many... I guess opportunities for people to participate in sport. It's really that like you're trying to compete for people's attention to promote um, tennis. I guess to such a wide population, how, how, um, what's the strategy? I mean, it just blows my mind yeah. to try and think about to you know put something in in a in a, in a plan and a concept yeah. to try and catch everyone's attention.
1: Sure. So there's a few few steps in between because people might think, "Gee, how did she go from..." You know how to produce go from what she was doing to marketing director of a, mm. of a grand slam um so from from that time i then went and worked in in tb for quite a while i'd studied mm. business in my undergrad i did a, a master of marketing at, at monash university and uh, prior to how i got that role as marketing director um there was a time in the midnight uh sorry mid two thousand. so we've jumped another decade so first decade was with wheelies yeah Next decade, I came came back for my next iteration and uh, it was at a time where the the sponsorship market was really flash. and uh, the guys at Tennis Australia, so Paul McNamee and others knew of me, knew that I could sell tennis and how passionate I was about tennis, knew it back to front. And so they said, look, we need to get a sponsor uh, to replace Heineken, which had gone to a, a lower level. Can you help us? I said, Absolutely. So this goes to your your question, Jake, in a a long way, but it gives you where my strategic thinking was on how we sell tennis. Yeah. And so I knew I was up against the IMGs and all these other big sports marketing firms, and I came in and I said I'd sold cricket for Channel 9 up against the tennis, uh, the Australian Open on Channel 7. Mm. Blokes love cricket. They're looking to get more women watching the game. Tennis had more women attending the Australian Open than men. So we already had this unusual, you know, situation where in a sport we skewed skewed females who were attending, which said to me that uh, intuitively and logically that we could get uh, brands that want to sell to women. Mm-hmm. So and we had an enormous opportunity there. So rather than going to, you know, insurance companies or those sorts of companies, I thought I'm going to go to every company that speaks to women, that females are mm-hmm. their nature. Okay. Major uh, customer. So you may or may not remember. Um, you're probably playing juniors at at this stage, but um, we had a major sponsor in Garnier. Yeah, which uh, I sold. Um, in I was given a three months. I had I had two little two little boys at this stage. I had a two year old and a six six month old, and I was given a three three month three day week contract to replace Heineken as the associate sponsor. And within that last week. Of that contract uh, we nailed Garnier which uh, then went on so it was a major deal and that went on to be a, a five-year multi-million dollar deal which uh, really brought a lot of fun and excitement they activated like no other sponsor at that time we've seen how Grand Slam Oval has mm. just erupted since then but Garnier really led the way so again I've been very lucky with the people that I've worked with I've worked with an amazing managing director of L'Oréal, Mark Tucker. Great people in top advertising agency. Sue Perry was leading an agency called Mojo Publicist at the time. So, you know what it's like. If you have any sort of success, it's really about the people that are that you're working with and you work that are around you that you're helping them to be better. They're helping you to be better, and together you get really good outcomes. So, that happens both on the court, but that is is no different in the business sense. So. I'd done that, managed that, and then uh, then I was uh, approached to apply for the role of, of marketing director. And, uh, you know, there was a big, it was a highly contested role. There were people mm. who were applying from all over the world because uh, who wouldn't want to be the marketing director of the Australian Open? Mm-hmm. What an amazing gig. And so, uh, you know, I think I had 35 interviews. I'm being slightly sarcastic, but it uh, <laughs> was just a few shorter than that and and was successful in in gaining that role. So to your question, then coming up with that strategy, again, I had a lot of background mm. and first hand knowledge of how tennis works and how tournaments and what the appeal of the Australian Open was to not only um, those of us here in Melbourne who are lucky enough to, to live, you know, I'm 5Ks from, from Melbourne Park, you know, how lucky is that, but to, uh, you know, people interstate and then obviously as a global brand so I'd done a number of things with with the Australian Open. Garnier is is the is the one that's obviously most most prominent. Um, and then through that, I was actually approached by the US Open, and I contracted to them for a while because uh, they were cheesed off that uh, we had Garnier and they didn't. <laughs> so that was that was a great experience as well. So the beauty of the Australian Open, and we're seeing this now with the 2021 Australian Open coming up, is that with the, the Australian open is the biggest sporting event in january and a lot of that is because the rest of most of the rest of the world are in very cold conditions mm. <laughs> so we have a moment in time in january where we can really capture the imagination and you look at australia and we've been called the the happy slam and you can see why you know it's mm. summertime here everyone's on holidays everyone's got a tan feeling good and we're just really open to, uh, to seeing uh, great, great tennis and, and welcoming new, new visitors. So that is always about the, the brand. Um, we positioned, so to go back to your question, how did we come up with the strategy? The previous marketing director had got it right, you know, Digby Nankara. He talked about that the Australian Open was world-class tennis and more. So it wasn't we had the best of the world, but we had more as well. So, and that was what I continued uh, to to work on. And at the same time, through my experience of coming through all of those grassroots programs and understanding how tennis works in Australia, my biggest mission um, in my time at Tennis Australia, you can see what I've I've done since since then, was to make that connection of really using the Australian Open as the platform to promote the sport in Australia domestically grow the game so there so that there isn't a disconnect be, between this grand slam there is that flow on effect between kids seeing up close the best in the world and really then being able to go back to their coaches who are so important to them to their club environments if they're in squads or programs to really start to bridge those gaps that can sometimes occur when most of tennis occurs overseas. We don't see yeah. our champions every day, as we do if we're, you know, in love with AFL football. There's lots of players around locally, but to really bridge the gap. And so that's that uh, was certainly the work that, that I was working with. So as well as being Marketing Director of the Australian Open, I was also Marketing Director of Tennis Australia, and that role to me was just as important, if not more important than Selling record ticket sales for the Australian Open. So the yeah. ticket sales, the strategy around that, that uh, with my business knowledge, uh, yeah. and of course working with great people and great staff, great agencies, and uh, you know great, great co-workers and, and colleagues, you know they'd done it many times as well. So I was I was walking into uh, you know a very switched on and professional team. Um, But for me, the opportunity, and I think uh, it's fair to say that continues to be the opportunity and the challenge for tennis in Australia, is bridging that gap because we are on show for two weeks of the year and who knows, Mm. through COVID, we may actually be on show into February. You know, there is talk that um, because COVID-19 has caused such disruption to uh, North America, South America, the world, you know, and, and Europe at this point in time, um, who knows? The players may stay uh, after the Australian Open and, uh, you know, play some more tournaments here in in Melbourne or uh, you know wherever that may be, subject to uh, to government border closures and uh, restrictions being lifted. So that could be a fantastic opportunity to really grow the game in mm. in Australia, which is what I continue to strive for um, in the voluntary work that I now do in tennis.
2: Yeah, so interestingly as well, you mentioned how it's something more and I know from my experience, um, especially since I stopped playing and going to the event with my friends and family is it is such an event now. There's there's music, there's, there's outdoor food stalls and bars um, and it's attracting such a wider audience where people who may not be interested in tennis before are now going for the event and then leaving with a good experience of tennis, even if, even if they didn't go there for the product of tennis primarily Um, and maybe they get their kids into tennis later because they've had this great experience going into 2021 when the crowds will be probably reduced by 50% or so I'm guessing how's that how's that strategy I guess differ from previous years
1: well I'm not I'm not marketing director anymore Jake so that's the
2: ideas that's not
1: my job. <laughs> That's for other people to to decide and and work through that. And I know that um, you know they they I don't I feel for them um, mm. because they've got lots of COVID, You know, wow, talk about contingency planning.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, they're putting all sorts of contingency planning, uh, and uh, obviously the priority is to be able to get players to to Melbourne, both from interstate and and internationally, safely and not putting anyone in the community at risk but uh yeah i'll leave that i'm not sure how they'll uh yeah a lot of things will be reduced so you know you know and as you've said there's been all sorts of activation in it. it's it's like a you know music festival as you said mm. in its own right um again going forward where the opportunity lies post-covid and and uh, let's hope we get a vaccine soon and we can all uh you know get on with lives but australia is doing so well aren't we so um but the trick is for all of those people, it's a bit like, you know, and obviously, you know, we do events so well in, in Melbourne. We've seen the Spring Racing Carnival is not just about the race that stops the nation as well, it's and, and more. So all of yeah. those festivals around that Australian Open has, has obviously taken that and taken that to another, another level, you know, kids mm. coming on site to play Fortnite um, yeah. as a driver to come on to, to Melbourne Park so the the opportunity there again um, with my passion for the sport of tennis in Australia wearing that hat very firmly is that's that is amazing. It is fantastic we have got everyone to come to us at Melbourne Park. How then do we bridge that gap and they may have come for fortnight or for an amazing wine and food experience in in high dining as a high corporate you know experience there for the for the music for an outdoor cinema whatever it may be how do we then encourage them to love tennis we've Mm -hmm. made them aware of the sport how do we drive that interest how do they become ambassadors for the sport so that's a challenge for uh tennis australia and those people who have those roles going forward but uh we see that that is a, such a big opportunity. Australian Open is the biggest sporting event, you know, in the world during those two weeks. How can we domestically really push that effectively through those clubs and, uh, you know, support the coaches and the MAs, um, you know, that's and really grow the game because without doubt, and this is what drives me and my passion with the Women's Tennis Foundation is, we are under threat as a sport from other. Really tough competitors domestically, and the AFL is is the biggest one. But mm. um, certainly for the female athlete and the male athlete, of course, um, you know you've got basketball, you've got soccer growing, and they're team sports. They are cheaper for parents. You can now actually learn a living, uh, earn a living, rather, and not travel over the mm. other side of the world. You know the biggest move you'll make is if you're from Melbourne is to Perth, which is still only three hours away. Um, so there are other options for our best, our best talent. So that's what drives me uh, to ensure that if, if we, uh, in my role at the Women's Tennis Foundation, uh, if we have talented players, that they're going to be able to reach their potential. And we're going to find a way to support them to do that.
0: Bridget, you've led from the front and done some incredible things, and now you are the president of the Women's Tennis Foundation. For those who aren't aware, can you tell us what the foundation does for female players in the country and specifically what your role is?
1: Thank you for that question, Jed. I'm very happy to tell you all about it. Again, I'm so lucky. I've known uh, Judy Dalton, who is an absolute legend of our game, for a long time, you know, through my various... Roles, roles in, in tennis, and and since leaving, um, you know, uh, the role, the last role at uh, at tennis Australia, I've also been a tennis parent as well. So I've had have two sons who have gone through juniors, played nationals. Uh, you know, one has travelled internationally with with TA and is now at US college. So I understand firsthand how tough this sport is. <laughs> and my younger son, who played nationals, played. You know, he can play. Um, he's been seduced uh, by football, so that's been uh, you know that's the sport that that uh, he's trying to pursue his his dream in. Uh, so again, I go back to Judy Dalton, who was uh, who has been president of what was the Fed Cup Foundation. We changed the name to the Women's Tennis Foundation last year. So Judy was president for for 40 years, an absolute trailblazer of the game. Uh, her and and another Australian player, Kerry Reid, were one of you may or may not have heard of the original nine, who, along with Billie Jean King, started professional tennis for women. So they—they are—it's uh, their 50th anniversary this year. So that's been disappointing. They haven't been able to go to all the Grand Slams and celebrate. But the WTA have done a great job in sharing that incredible story, and it's interesting seeing some of the AFLW. Uh, players and other female sports that are going female players who are going into male-dominated sports they're still having those struggles and and fighting and raising the, the uh, issues of opportunity and equality and that was happening in tennis back 50 years ago with, with those women so so i've been very lucky to uh, to have known judy for a long time um judy asked me a few years ago uh, again uh, people know that i love tennis i don't know how to uh, promoter that I work with corporates and she said, can you come and help us and let's let's see if we can get a few sponsors involved. So from that I got got involved, uh, went on the committee and uh, Judy decided to uh, retire last year and uh, I'm very honored to have been handed the the reins from her um, 12 oh, 18 months ago now. and uh, yeah I look forward to continuing in this role but uh, as I said, my big big passion through all of the different hats that I've worn, in tennis is to ensure that Australian players, that if they have potential, that uh, they have the opportunity and they're not denied those opportunities because their parents simply can't afford uh, mm. to keep them in the game and get them the support that they, they need. So as a, as a result, um, I have a great committee of, of people who I work with. We do this for the love of the game. We're not getting getting paid to, to do this. There's so many of people in tennis do. So we're really grassroots people. Yeah. Who, who want the best for the for the sport and, you know, we've got some we've invested. Uh, you may or may not believe this, but it's it's true. Over the last three years, we've invested and supported over a hundred tennis players in Australia.
2: That's amazing.
1: So again, we're you know there's ten of us who are volunteers, and uh, you know Jake, I know uh, lots of tennis players find it tough when they're transitioning as players. Then they're deciding whether they're going to be a, a coach or an administrator or they're going to leave tennis. They might be burnt out and say, I'm out of this, I'm going to do something yeah. completely different. Um, we we have employed the only administrators that we've actually paid to do some work have have been tennis players. So Sally Pierce has has worked with us, Fantastic. Uh, and has done a tremendous job. Sally's now gone on, finished her business degree. She's doing all sorts of of wonderful things, coaching, working on boards in tennis at Kooyong and doing, uh, you know, great work. And uh, most recently, uh, Samantha Harris, who's a political science graduate from Duke University, the, the US college system, and, and Sam, again, is, is doing a, a great job. So that's one of the things that we don't really talk about too much, but we we I like to employ tennis players, young tennis players, and, yeah. and I believe and I keep encouraging my colleagues in the business world that if you have... People who have been elite tennis players who have probably travelled overseas, but you know, from the time they're 12 onwards, the amount of resilience that these athletes have, the self starting qualities that they have, the understanding of buying into a process and working to get better every day these are absolutely high level executives that uh, you have. So they've simply done their work on a tennis court but yeah. those skills with the right then uh, education uh, around them can go on to do whatever they choose to because they've they've done it already at whatever level of tennis they have achieved they have worked towards achieving their potential and you can't say that for for everyone in the community so, so I, I encourage um as do my colleagues on the committee to really get behind uh, tennis players <laughs> So that's uh, you know that's some of the things that's some of the things that we do.
2: Yeah, it's a fantastic initiative, and uh, I guess there's so many grateful players out there for all the help um, your foundation has has given them. And it's great to see as well that players, I guess, as a junior, a lot of people think if you don't make the top hundred, you know that's it, and you know everything's done and dusted and it's a failure. But it's it's great to see that there are people out there. Open to, I guess, fulfilling a fantastic and amazing career in tennis, and can keep uh, people inspired um, to do great things within the sport. You touched on their college as well for Sam Harris and, and also your son. Um, if you don't mind, could you take us through a little bit of that um, process of, I guess, yourself and your son, or your son solely deciding to go to college? Um, it's it's a it's a new pathway in the last kind of five years that's really become very favourable amongst the players and giving them extra time to develop. Would you like to chat us through um, that that part of his journey?
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Jake. Um, Yeah, Campbell, Campbell Salmon is my my son. Um, uh, Very early on, he he got the bug very early on, you know, played Bruce Cup, played, you know, Victoria, played, you know, he just got the bug. He just loved loved tennis, Um, very good uh, athlete, could play any sport, you know just picked things up um very good middle distance runner and but tennis he caught the the tennis bug and so tennis all those other sports probably you know he was playing lots started to do really well at nationals mm. uh when he was in the in the 12s and started to to poke his head up you know he hadn't been you know solely doing tennis at that point he'd been we I you know my husband and I uh, my husband's also a former tennis coach as well who's gone into business um so we were very conscious that we wanted both our children to play lots of sports, to play team sports, and for them to decide, Jake and Jed, mm. uh, I think this is important, that whatever they chose as something, we wanted them to love a sport mm. and to really give whatever they loved a red hot go. You know, as a migrant coming to Australia, we, my family motto was all about if you're going to do something, then you're going to give it 100%. There wasn't, there's no... He's no, yeah, we'll just participate. No, we were all in, and that's that's yeah. just me. That's that's how I go about things. Um, so yeah, so he he went on that journey and uh you know, started 13, 14, then really decided that tennis was for him. Um, so he was very lucky through his his results. Um, you know, he was then offered his own scholarship at the at the National Academy trained with. With Bernie Gerlitz there for, for a number of years. From me, Richard Fromberg, was his yeah. first coach. So, he's, again, he's had some really great, great coaches. And uh, really about um, year eight, year nine, Campbell's always been a man of his own, a young man who knows where he wants to go. Um, so he decided, you know, from year nine he was already doing the subjects that he knew he needed to uh, To translate that into the U.S. college system, he had really seen that 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 was the pathway for him. It's also very young for his uh, birth year. He's an end of Ooh. December baby, which isn't good
0: no, <laughs> in not tennis. tennis.
1: So he, he felt like he needed a few years um, away before really going on the tour, if that was what he you know still chose to do at that at that time. So. Um, and he's still still pretty keen on on uh, you know on chasing that that dream and and uh, you know really living and really progressing his potential on the court, which is a credit to him. But um, yeah, so once you start travelling internationally, then coaches start to approach you. So it was really a case, Jake, where um, and a lot of the young Australian players and I hear his parents actually ask me often, look these these young players are getting uh, Facebook messages or whatever it may be, Instagram messages, WhatsApp, um, and coaches are starting to talk to them. What does that mean? How do you navigate through through all of that? So um, we then, uh, I spoke to uh, a coach who we've seen as uh, seen, a Tennis Australia coach, David Moore, who you, you may not know. About. He's based in, in Sydney now. And Maury was, uh, was fantastic advice. So it's interesting. I, I never assume, as much as I've worked in tennis, uh, pretty much all of my, life if you like i never assume that i know anything and this was out of out of my realm of understanding so i reached out to dave Moore and said you know how does this all work for me it's really important if you go if your child is going to go to the other side of the world for four years uh and you're a long way away that uh you have as much knowledge as you can so so campbell researched a lot he sat his SATs, uh you know got the score that he, he needed to and uh you know, he, he then went on a tour. Of, he was invited across to a number of universities over there, which which he was able to to do, and to get to know the each of the coaches, to see what those universities were like, um, and uh, you know he was interested in carrying on his studies. So um, he was very fortunate. Got a got a great uh, scholarship offer at uh, a wonderful university in Houston, tennis called Rice University, mm-hmm. and so uh, he's been there although he's been in Melbourne since March he will go back in in January and that will be his third season and to your point Jake and and Jed uh the college tennis you know and and you know a number of our scholarship players you know Astra Sharma, Belinda Woolcock, Alan Perez you know three of our six scholarship players and the other three this year are Lizette Cabrera, (laughs) Nenglis and Kayla McPhee but those first three that I've mentioned they've all come through the the college system and Mm. Are going on to have fantastic WTA uh, results. So for me, I saw this as an as opportunity for uh, my son to leave the nest at home, where leave Little Melbourne, where lots is, is pretty easy for you. You know, it's a bit of a small pond, um, as all of our hometowns are, and to really grow as a person first and foremost. And to really challenge yourself to go into a completely different culture, and we look at what's happened in the U.S. My goodness, it's it's a, such an interesting interesting time. Um, so to really go out there, there were no other Aussies uh, in the team. He knew a couple of well, he knew one player who he'd actually played doubles uh, with and won a tournament uh, in the in the ITF Juniors. Uh, Overseas, which was nice, So, but really going into a place where you virtually know no one, new culture, um, different time zones so you can't ring home all the time, um, and competing. And the the level of competition, this is what I absolutely love about about this system, is that you are playing matches all the time, every week, numerous matches, different teams. You're travelling, you're on the road, and you're just getting so much match practice, which... As a as a parent, as a as a former coach, I look at when I see our juniors when they go to Europe, especially, when they're young, and America as well. And I think sometimes, not all the time, but certainly sometimes they're surprised at at just how intense the competition is. And that's because those players have had access to, you know high level competition every week. It's just their norm. It's just as if they're they're playing pennant every week. That's what they're used to. It it becomes natural. So to give our players that opportunity, it's their choice as young adults to go over there to grow as people, but to get that tough match practice and to have your coaches there on court. They can give you feedback straight away and then the next day you can put it into into practice in an actual match itself, not in training but actually in match conditions, I think uh, is phenomenal experience to be able to, if you're lucky enough to get some scholarship, um, you know, and the girls get bigger scholarships than the guys, there's more funding available. I just think it's a fantastic opportunity to get a great education, to grow as a person. And if you go for six months or you, you complete your degree, it doesn't matter, you've had a tremendous life experience and then you're a young adult. Who's developed their own thoughts? They can make their own decisions, and then they can drive what their tennis looks like in the future. So, um, yeah, that's that's certainly uh, where I see it uh, as a as a potential pathway for, um, particularly coming from. Uh, you know, we're a remote island. You know?
0: Absolutely, yeah, and I think the college pathway is definitely becoming. A more popular option, which it certainly should be, because it presents an incredible opportunity for aspiring players, especially uh, from Australia specifically. Now, Bridget, just touching on the foundation once again, you mentioned some of the players who have come through college uh, and are now sponsored by the foundation. Has, I mean, we're living in unprecedented times yeah. at the moment. How has the coronavirus pandemic affected the foundation and what are some of yeah. the hurdles that you've had to overcome?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Gee, we've been pivoting just like everybody else. So welcome to my office where I haven't <laughs> left since since March. Um so yeah, so it's affected us like every sporting club, you know, our, our membership has has dropped. You know, people have suffered, you know, you know, people close to us, you know, we've lost family members. There's, you know, a lot of people have lost jobs. So normally if, if members for example don't uh, you know renew their membership straight away we follow up with them this year we just let it go you know people are suffering times are really tough so so we're, our role is to support everyone so so you know and sponsors and so forth of course of course we've been been affected but we're we're pivoting unfortunately we had to we run a tour for the best, 15-year-olds in Australia um, in partnership with Tennis Australia. We take them to US college and they play ITFs, they're away for a month over there to give them that, that taste and opportunity. We had to obviously cancel that in 2020. We right. run the Judy Dalton Country Cup for the best 13 and under kids from rural and regional Australia. We bring them to Kooyong in January, give them a great national event that's run uh, by Tennis Victoria for us great supporters of ours we take them to the Australian Open so again you can see my strategy of always trying to link the players and being able to visually and experience what their dreams could look like for them Um, so that we've we've had to cancel as we simply don't have to we don't want to put anyone at risk we've cancelled that for January 2021. Our biggest fundraiser breakfast with the stars where we We've had all the greats. We we sell out the MCG dining room in January. We're going to go online with that. We, we'll do that via Zoom. So we we keep keep uh, fundraising for for next year. Our board meetings have gone via Zoom. Everything is being done virtually, but it's made us think and it's made us really look at how we move forward strategically. And so, in some ways, you know, it's some there's there's always opportunity for growth. You know, someone very wise in business said to me, Bridget, don't waste a crisis. You know, there's always an opportunity to narrow your focus and really determine how you can can improve. So we've initiated some really good things. We've had some social clubs with our scholarship players. And just to check in on them, our members have been concerned about them. You know, some have been able to travel and compete at the US and the French Open. Um, Belinda Woolcock was obviously here in in Melbourne. Um, So we're we're just wanting to reach out to, to everyone and to see how they're travelling. Because once, once we can play and we can play now in Melbourne and tournaments are coming back, we, we want everybody ready to go. But off the back of that, we've, we're then Jed uh, looking at a, a new fundraiser where we're going to do a virtual walk uh, wherever you want to walk in Australia on November 29th. And we think this is a great way for those of you who have been in your office and you haven't been uh, exercising to start that exercise process bring some friends along and uh, get a Women's Tennis Foundation T-shirt, walk together, have some fun. And, again, it's a bit like those Australian Open strategies, Jake, where it's tennis and more. Mm-hmm. We're looking to to grow, you know, what the work of the foundation, the awareness of that by sharing the love to a bigger audience, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously get all our tennis community involved and going for a walk with, with friends and raising funds. All the money goes directly to our scholarship fund but at the same time getting more people to talk about tennis
0: to mm-hmm. raise
1: the awareness of our, um, our, our great players because we, we are so lucky, particularly, uh, well, we are, we're just so lucky in tennis at the moment to have a world number one in Ash Barty. And we really, we, sh- we really should be working 24-7 to make the most of that because we will only have that, please, God, she's world yeah. number one for the next 10 years, uh, she is the most powerful woman woman in tennis, um, yeah. and we should be supporting her, supporting who she is and what she stands for. I was so delighted to see her present the cup um, to uh, you know to to Cochin there at uh, although what's a shame it wasn't Collingwood, but nevertheless to uh, to her favourite Tigers.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, you know we should be doing everything we can to inspire every young girl to be the next Ashbards. So. So, if you guys want to join us on our walk for women's tennis, I'd love you too.
2: Yeah, we might have to jump in. What do you think, Jed? Absolutely, for sure. I'll be
1: there. Get those, get those club members so you can walk wherever you like. Maybe you could set up a, a group out at Wellington Tennis Club, Jake. Um, to walk from the club and back to the club, and then have a have a lesson with you afterwards. There you go.
2: That's so, a fantastic um, idea, and and you are you are correct there as well with Ash Barty. She's it's not just being world number one; she is an amazing person as well which is um, which we're just I guess just grateful to have someone like that at the top of the world of tennis uh, from Australia Um, just as a marketing specialist as well and talking about linking I guess fans and kids to the players what's the importance of social media these days and and players um, promoting themselves on, on social media platforms what, what I'm witnessing most of the time is basically it's a free-for-all and they, they run their own accounts. Um, is that a, a new dynamic coming in where people are helping manage their accounts or is it still um, yeah, just, just, just open to the players?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it, mm. really? Um, it's a double-edged sword that you really have to navigate because with success and the more popular you become uh, you know you grow your awareness and that can that can be a revenue stream and as we know tennis players need as as many revenue streams as as they can um, so that's something that they they certainly should con- consider and whether they're managing it themselves or they they get some assistance in that is is really their choice uh, but at the same time you do get trolls and you do get mm-hmm. a lot of people uh, you know saying negative things you know I've, I've had players say to me Bridget when, when as a marketer I'm saying you know Let's see how you can really grow your, um, you know, your social media platforms mm. and and your uh, your following. And players and coaches have have said, look, you know, the, the coach may manage the um, the, okay. uh, the the particular platform because they're concerned that if their player loses the match, inevitably they're going to get trolls mm. uh, doing all sorts of horrible things. You know, like uh, it could be someone who's who's bet on their match and lost money, and so there's you know we're going to all sorts of terrible threats you know we don't need to repeat them but i'm sure yeah. you can imagine um and this is not fair you know mm. but that's just the way that it is so it's it's uh it's as i said it's a double-edged sword of course you want to grow your awareness and we can see some of our tennis players get following in the millions and that's great mm. revenue streams for them you know they can that's their own network if you like and you know, we we've we've seen how, you know, Nick Kyrios, for example, has, you know, so powerful through his, his social media and can create fantastic change, you know, with his positive uh, you know, contribution to getting fundraising for the bushfires at, at mm. this year's remember those bushfires that happened yeah. in Australia and devastated it, seems like years ago. But mm. wasn't he fantastic in using his profile for good? So that's what, uh, you know, that would be my comment, that certainly, without doubt, it is the way forward, it Is the way to communicate and you can control your message. But there is that other uh, negative side in all social media and online platforms where there are some, some people who, uh, you, know, who, are, who are, you know, whether it's hate speech or there's people who, who simply want to vent their own anger, and they choose uh, high-profile athletes uh, to, to do that with. So it's important to how you manage your own exposure to that um, for your own mental health and well-being. because at the end of the day we want our, our tennis players to be really well, to be really healthy and happy, feeling good about themselves and not having to worry about, uh, you know, being abused via these social media platforms. So... My advice to them is to, to have a, a social media strategy and for their professional persona as athletes and to to have private accounts for their, you know, things that they don't necessarily want to share with with the world and uh, just with their their friends and family or whoever they, they choose to. So careful management, Jake, would be my response mm. to that. But with a clear strategy, it can inevitably um, drive revenue for you, but also you have the opportunity to to really grow your brand. Um, that can lead to other endorsements, of course. And, and of course, uh, sponsors, well, that's one of the first things they'll look to is, you know, how big is your social media following? Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're the, they're the challenges, they're the choices that, um, that athletes have to make. Some are more naturally, uh, you know, favourable or comfortable, if you like, in, in uh, really promoting their, their social media uh, platforms and growing that others are a little bit more um, reserved if you like mm. uh, in private and And uh, their approach is to they, they just want their their tennis to do the talking for them and that's that's absolutely fine too so but there is a, it is a great opportunity to want to grow great grow fan base uh, to tell people your story you can control the narrative which is really important and if you can get help in in managing. Uh, those platforms, uh, then that's that's the way to go. And and really for for athletes to be comfortable with the, the level of social media exposure they have. So, so so yeah, it's an opportunity, but like any opportunity, it's not without risk.
0: Yeah, Bridget, that's certainly some yeah really outstanding advice. And I think moving forward now, uh, it's important that we uh, face these types of challenges because. Yeah, social media is certainly becoming a very prominent part of our, I think, everyone's lives. Just one last one before we let you go. It's obviously going to be very tough to uh, kick kick off everything as we sort of go back to some form of normality. What are the plans for the Women's Tennis Foundation going into 2021 and just how tough do you expect it to be to uh, kickstart the foundation again coming off what was, I guess, the dire 2020.
1: Yeah, well, uh, we'll all be very happy when 2020 comes to an end, won't we? Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think it's going to be fantastic, Jed and Jake, without doubt, after promoting our walk with women's tennis with you two today and, and now that you've both committed to, to joining it, you know, you'll go on our website and, and buy your T-shirt straight away or, or you can uh, find us on Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter. You can also enter there. We we actually it, we, we're looking at new things like that walk. So we hope that this is our inaugural one. Uh, so the first time on Sunday January, uh, sorry, Sunday November twenty nine. Um, you know we'll get that started. But we see that growing. We see that as an event that we'll run annually and we'll grow Absolutely. that. So from all of these, as I said, you never waste a crisis. As as tough and as horrible as has this this period has been, there's always a silver lining. There's always an opportunity as a marketer. That is the skill set that, that I certainly have looked to continue to, to grow, um, is that you, you're always looking for, there is a silver lining. There's an, always a new way of, of doing things. So, uh, with, again, we'll flip online with Breakfast with the Stars. We'll still have great interviews, great guests uh, from all over the world joining us. And, in fact, by going online, we may be able to get more High-profile tennis guests from overseas. It may be easier for them to be involved rather than to physically coming to the event. So we've been, we have tremendous support from all of our donors, from our uh, suppliers and and sponsors who donate things for us to raffle and so forth. So going forward, we are really committed. We've been around for forty-two years now, guys. We ain't going anywhere, and we will continue to support our Australian players as best that we can. So our scholarship program it will it will move forward in 2021. We will reinvigorate taking those girls to the US. We will we will find a way because you know I believe in what we're doing. We have a great committee who believes in what we're doing and uh, our members believe in what we're doing. We we're, we're going to introduce a lifetime membership uh, hopefully next next year. You know you'll you'll love this story. I'll leave you with this this story. Um, as I said, I've been working from my dining room for for the last last nine months, and uh, came in the mail to to the office, uh, which is the headquarters for the foundation. One of our oldest members gave us it's only fifty bucks to be an annual member of the Women's Tennis Foundation. She sent us two hundred and fifty dollars, and she said, "Look, there's the next five years done. We love what you're doing. This has been tough, but we're going to get through it." So it's the tennis community. It starts and ends with the tennis community. And uh, you know we're very lucky to have our support. So we'll we'll navigate through this. We'll come out the other side, and you know what? We'll we'll go on and be uh, be stronger for it, and uh, you know continue to support our players as best we
0: can. Absolutely, Bridget. I think as Australians involved in the tennis landscape, we have so much to thank you for your time at Tennis Australia and a the small Australian part
1: Open. that I play, guys. Only a small yes. part, but I love it.
0: Yeah, your time at Tennis Australia and the Australian Open leading from the front to give tennis the platform it has today and what you're currently doing with the Women's Tennis Foundation is incredible and selfless and we're very lucky to have a major asset like yourself in our game. So we thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today and we wish you the best of luck as we start returning to some form of normality.
1: Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Jed and Jake. Um, you know, it's been a pleasure to talk tennis. I'm happy to talk with you at any any time. Um, keep doing the great work that you're doing in, in uh, sharing lots of different stories in tennis. I think that's really important that we, we do that because there's lots of great people involved. And I look forward, I can't wait to see the photos of you both wearing your Women's Tennis Foundation T-shirts on November 29. I'm going to be looking out for it. And guess what? We'll we'll share it on all our media, um, social media platforms. How's that? Yeah,
2: that's it. We'll jump on and grab our shirts very soon.
1: Sounds great, Jake. All the best, guys. Thanks so much for for having me today. And I, I look forward to seeing you again soon.
0: Thanks, Bridget. Well, that's a wrap for this week's edition of Aussies Only. I hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to head back and listen to all of our previous editions of the show. We've had some ripper guests on and some really interesting stories have been told. So make sure to head over to our Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast platform you're listening on. It is available on all the major podcast platforms and tune in to our previous editions of the show. Once again, brought to you by Latua Tennis. Head over to LatourTennis.com and get your hands on the hottest tennis apparel in the game. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Aussies Only.
1: Subscribe to the first serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to all our weekly content, including past editions of Aussies Only, as well as our dedicated commercial radio program each Monday on SEN that you may have missed at 7pm Eastern. Crunching the numbers and In the Huddle, produced by Study and Play USA. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis.